Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Women Offshore Podcast. I'm April Killian, and I've taken over for Allie this week. I am a licensed mariner and a former Coast Guard Marine Inspector. And today I am here with Leslie Hearn, a retired Coast Guard Senior Chief, and we are here to talk with you about search and rescue. Thank you so much, Leslie, for being here. Hi, April. Thanks for having me. As you know, I'm a mariner, and I have a very fond appreciation for those that do search and rescue because, well, no one wants to utilize your services when you're there. (laughs) We're very glad that, you know, there are people trained in order to conduct search and rescue. And I know that you had a career in search and rescue. So you were in the Coast Guard, right? I was in the Coast Guard, yes. And and how long were you in the Coast Guard? I joined in November 2000 and retired in December 2020. So 20 years and four days. But who's counting? (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And what did you do in the Coast Guard? Originally, I joined to be what was called a radarman. So that would have been mostly seagoing billets or jobs for my career if I did stay for a career. Initially, I was stationed in my hometown, San Diego, on board Coast Guard Cutter Hamilton. And Hamilton's mission at the time was mostly counter-narcotics. So we did lots of patrols, you know, heading down south off of Central America. But then when the 9-11 attacks happened after that, the whole Coast Guard was moved from Department of Transportation to Department of Homeland Security, which, and then the radar min rating went away and I became an operations specialist. So any operations specialist will probably tell you that our jobs are many, you know, you go from one job to the next and they might not have a lot in common. But for me, I wanted to be underway. Unfortunately, that wasn't in the cards for me after Hamilton. I moved up to LA Long Beach where I worked as a SAR controller for five years. So you were an operations specialist that worked as a SAR controller? Yep, first on the ship and then in LA for five years as a SAR controller. And then I went up the coast once I made chief to the Point Reyes National Seashore. There's a communications station up there called CAMS PAC, and it stands for Communications Area Master Station Pacific. And up there where we're responsible for monitoring high-frequency voice circuits, as well as long-range DSC, or digital selective calling. We sent out offshore weather forecasts, which maybe your listeners are familiar with. So weather facts, navigational telex, which is Navtex. We also maintain radio guards for some of the longer-range Coast Guard assets. After CAMS PAC, I made senior chief and then got orders to my dream billet, which was the National SAR School in Yorktown, Virginia. So I did three years there and then got orders to Monroe, at the time was the newest national security cutter, home ported out of Alameda. On Monroe, my job was kind of twofold. I was the senior operations specialist in charge of Combat Information Center. And then I was also selected for a collateral duty known as the CECL or the Command Senior Enlisted Leader. That job, the CECL job, took up the majority of my time, but that's where people-centered work became my passion. And then after four years on the ship, I called it quits, retired. It's an awesome career that you've had. Thank you so much for your service. Yeah, you too, April. Thank you. (laughs) And your continued service as a spouse. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) It's never a dull moment. (laughs) (laughs) So can you tell me a little more about what it was like being a SAR controller or SAR for our listeners is search and rescue. But can you tell us more about what that was like and what that job entailed? Yeah, sure. In the time since I've been in the command center, just 
full disclosure, they've changed the name of SAR controller to operations controller. But, you know, as we go on in this interview, I'll just keep saying SAR controller because that was my reality, if that's okay. Yeah. So like you said, SAR stands for search and rescue. And a SAR controller is a person that usually takes the initial notification of distress. They're a person who works at a command center, usually for a 12-hour shift. Some command centers have eight-hour shifts. And it's an alert watch position, meaning you can't go to sleep, you can't leave the building. And there's someone from the Coast Guard in an alert watch position 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So when the call comes in from anyone, because anyone can activate the SAR system, it could be a phone call to the command center, VHF radio transmission or DSC alert, or just someone reporting they thought they saw a flare So a large part of my job as a SAR controller was investigating, gathering information, disseminating it up the chain of command and back down to our search and rescue units, briefing command for launch authority, meaning the command is aware that we're going to launch a helicopter and the details of the case before we put our helicopter crews at risk, and then maintaining communications with the assets So that's basically it. In the civilian world, I like to think of it as kind of like a 911 dispatcher. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. That is awesome. And it's really good to know that there are people out there willing to help mariners or anyone in distress at sea. So when you do this job, do you work with other countries when you're doing it? Yeah, actually. So when I worked in Los Angeles, I didn't work with a lot of countries because I wasn't at a sector or Coast Guard unit that was you know, on a international border, but sector San Diego, I would imagine that they work with the Mexican Navy. I know when there were flare reports when I was on my ship Monroe off of San Diego, we worked with the Mexican Navy, but it was all done through our parent command. So yes, and for international SAR, absolutely. There's established and mutually agreed upon bilateral agreements that are in place for partner nations and U.S. cooperation. And It's something that's developed, you know, before the stuff hits the fan, so to speak. So there's a plan in place. Everyone who's playing knows the rules and the terminology before there's a major incident at sea. So once the Mexican Navy arrives with the U.S. Coast Guard, everyone's speaking the same language, so to speak. One thing that did initially surprise me when I was working SAR was the level of dedication in developing and fostering the international relationships and relationships with, you know, other government assets or agencies. I think that's one thing I really love about the maritime industry is that it is so international. And then there is this like innate law that exists. And obviously it's a codified or codified law that we help other mariners at sea and that mariners, like all countries come together to make sure that those at sea are or are sought after when they're in distress or that they're cared for in if they need that. And so I've just always thought that was a really neat thing about the maritime industry. Yeah, I agree. When I was in Yorktown, I worked with the International Maritime Officers course, just volunteered to house one of the students. So that school, this is a little bit off topic, but they bring students and officers from all over the world and train them in the Coast Guard's ways for search and rescue, you know, marine environmental protection, all of our 11 mission areas. And we got to host a gentleman, Cephas, from Liberia and his roommate from Cote d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast, Kati. And they were great. 
And it really does help to break down barriers. And when I was instructing at the SAR school, we saw students from the Bahamas, Germany, Australia, India, Mexico, from all over. I touched a little bit on the OGAs or other government agencies. Like when I was in LA working SAR, Mm -hmm. LA County Fire Baywatch Division like the TV show, <laughs> but they have That's actual cool. boats and they're legit off like lifeguards that go offshore. They helped us with so many cases. LA city had fire boats with great capabilities. And then down South, we worked with the orange County Sheriff Harbor division. I mean, they're just force multipliers. And like you said, it's like an unwritten rule for mariners in distress. You know, you're going to help regardless of your flag. Exactly. So when you were a SAR controller, which you said now is an operations controller. Yes. Okay. Where did you operate? Was there a specific jurisdiction under which you worked? Yes. So I was in LA Long Beach, which had the ports of Los Angeles and the ports of Long Beach, one of the busiest port complexes in the world. If you look at the Coast Guard organization as a whole, there's the headquarters. It's in Washington, D.C. It's policy, you know, and then the U.S. is divided into areas, Atlantic area, Pacific area. So if you look at Pacific area, it's all of the West Coast plus Alaska, Hawaii and the waters in between and past that. So it's massive areas. The areas are broken down into districts and then the districts have several sectors that are under them. And then the sectors have several stations under them. So it's kind of like a well-defined hierarchy. When I was a SAR controller in between the ports of LA and Long Beach, my chain of command, my direct report was my command. And then I'd make notifications also to the D11 or District 11 command center. We had three stations under us at the sector and four patrol boats. Again, this is about 13 years ago. Our AOR, our area of responsibility, covered from the San Diego-Orange County border all the way up north past Morro Bay or Hearst Castle area, and then out to sea 200 miles. So for those who are familiar with the area in Los Angeles, offshore here, we have the Channel Islands National Marine Sanctuary, which I think there's seven or eight islands plus the mainland. That's a lot of coastline to cover. So the way that the districts usually run search and rescue out for areas that are outside the sector's area of responsibility, or if there's a case that's drifting from Los Angeles to San Diego, say, and it's crossing the sector boundaries, the district will take it. Okay. So the district will work together. Yeah. With their subordinate commands. Okay, cool. So there are definitely distinct areas which you operate when you're a SAR controller. Definitely, yeah. Okay, cool. That's really neat to know. I didn't know all that. <laughs> I could dive deeper, but it's <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, I'm sure it is. I'm sure ugh, I just think about like having to know the area and having to know like the assets. Like I'm sure it is a lot. And I'm very grateful for you and for those that continue to do that job. <laughs> yeah, I'm grateful for those who stay on the watch. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. So do you have any memorable cases or any like really rewarding or proud moments in your career involving SAR? In LA, there's a Coast Guard unit, or there was, I'm not sure if it's still there, like the MOPIC office. So they deal with motion pictures because it's just LA. It's unique to LA. And I think some of the cases, like we had famous people cases, unfortunately, Olivia Newton-John's 
boyfriend went missing. That's memorable because, you know, the notoriety attached to it. The host of Press Your Luck, he passed away in a plane crash. I remember that one. But the one that hits me most had a tragic outcome. But because of the way I investigated it, we were able to give closure to the family. And that one is pretty sensitive. It involved the brother and his girlfriend and their dog. He has two sisters who are in representatives for California. I mean, the case was hard, but through investigation, you know, watching radars that were recorded, we were able to find out where the vessel was, what happened, and then recover it. So that to me is, it wasn't a life saved and it wasn't property saved, which is how the Coast Guard can measure success for SAR. Being able to give the family closure was bigger to me. I mean, because what happened happened. So all we could do is just work to find them. Absolutely. I could understand that. Having that ability to provide the family that closure, that's really important. Yeah. I mean, I think it definitely takes its toll on operations controllers or SAR controllers because, you know, people aren't calling to be like, hey, how are you? They're calling on their worst day of their life, you know. So that can take a toll. So if I could urge the SAR controllers listening, if there's any out there to dial in your me time, come up with some kind of self-care before it, you know, gets to be too much to handle. Absolutely. It must be a challenging job because like you said, people are calling on the worst day of their life. They're not yeah. calling in their happy moments. Yeah. So you take on a lot of responsibility. So yeah. thank you for that. Sure. <laughs> so are there any happy moments that you remember in SAR? Oh, yeah. I mean, when a case resolves and I don't have any specific stories and I was kind of wondering why I don't. Like, why do I have these cases that could have turned out better? You know, yeah, there's been a bunch, <laughs> you know. Well, that's I, good. I don't know if I can think of a specific one, though. But that's Maybe great I'll... to know that there are, you know, there are positive outcomes. Yeah. So can you tell me a little more about the SAR school? You said you used to be, you taught there? I did, yes. I arrived there in 2013. And departed in 2016. Okay. Now, what is the SAR school? It is a national search and rescue school that's located on Coast Guard Training Center in Yorktown, Virginia. So when everyone says, I'm going to SAR school, they usually think they're going, the requirement is for maritime search planning or MSP, what the course is known as. Mm -hmm. That's a four-week course that's usually taught in, it's a resident course taught in Yorktown, But I think COVID's changed that. I think it's blended now. They're doing online and then in person. That course covers everything from Coast Guard policies, general SAR background and the SAR system, SAR planning, case evaluation, and then how to document the case and how to use SARops. So SARops is the, it stands for Search and Rescue Optimal Planning System, and it's a computer that helps us come up with, once we put in the inputs, like the specific search object that we're looking for. It takes weather impacts for that specific area and then drifts it out or models it for that specific search object and those weather conditions, plus, you know, the potential for positional error, time error, and it comes up with a model of where the object's most likely to be. Wow, that's Uh, really cool. It is cool. There's quite the learning curve. It's very detailed, but it's great. And the SAR school also, on the flip side... They host a two-week manual method planning or SAR planning class, which is 
the manual method of calculations and planning on paper. It's so involved, detail-oriented, time-consuming, and that course was developed with help from the civilians that are still on staff at SAR school and then several volunteers known as Coast Guard Auxiliarists. That's the Coast Guard Volunteer Force. And they came up with this manual method book so people can take it. And if they have to, if the computer crashes, they can try and fumble their way through it. But yeah, it's amazing dedication from those volunteers. There's also a SAR supervisor course and the Air Force puts on an inland SAR course there. Okay, because the Air Force also has their SAR school there? They have their inland SAR planning there and they host several classes, I think maybe two or three classes a year. And they get pretty involved with like missing people and plotting it out on terrain. <laughs> wow. To me, it sounds hard because I'm used to the, you know, the ocean. But yeah, it was a challenging class, but also very fun. And I felt accomplished after it. That's really cool. So yeah. in Alaska, I know there's a lot of SAR that the Coast Guard does that's inland. Do they have to, do you have to take that in order to work in Alaska? No, I took it because I wanted to and I was at SAR school and I thought, why not? But they were all like sheriff's department personnel, a lot of volunteers for search and rescue, like just clubs or organizations for all these areas. That's great. It kind of ties back to what we were saying about that dedication to Mariners and that unspoken agreement that we look out for each other. Yep. And that's true too, because like with the inland SAR aspect that the Air Force brings, you know, down here in the contiguous U.S., to see all the volunteer organizations show up really speaks to the Air Force credibility for that. And yeah, that was kind of something I wasn't prepared for seeing at a Coast Guard training center, but it was really cool to get to know them and and see what they did. That's really neat. That's awesome. So what are some things that you would want a mariner or maybe someone in the maritime industry to know about the job of a SAR controller or an operations controller? Like, so just mom and pop boater, that's a really good question. So my advice for like a licensed professional mariner is different. (laughs) And actually, I don't have advice for those mariners (laughs) because they've really been forced multipliers for us, like on their own. They just happen upon SAR cases or through Amber, which I'm sure everyone knows about. But that is a good question. And news doesn't really get any better with age. So my advice to the mariner would be the sooner that the Coast Guard's notified, the better. If you call in a distress, we're going to do everything possible to find your friend or loved one. When I think of things that mariners can do to better prepare for their voyage, I think they need to file a float plan with a trusted friend or family member with instructions on who to call if they miss a check-in and their overall voyage plan. Also, off the top of my head, buy and register an EPIRB for your vessel. An EPIRB is a emergency position indicating radio beacon. And these devices, once they're activated, either manually or they have a hydrostatic release. So if the vessel sinks, it'll float free and then start to transmit. And it's so accurate. When I was in LA, you know, this is a while ago, some of them were accurate up to a tenth of a mile. And now they have even more capabilities. So buy an EPIRB. Go on the NOAA website and register it because it's no good if it's not registered. Well, it's good, but it won't give us all the information we need. And then lastly, if we started stand-up paddleboarding, my daughter and I, Uh and we used to get a lot of calls for personal watercrafts like kayaks or long surfboards or paddleboards that people would just kind of leave anchored out 
around Malibu, Zuma Beach, and then the wind event would happen and they'd get blown out to sea. And so there's no registration, like state or federal registration requirement for these crafts, but just putting your phone number on it would help the Coast Guard so much. Because if we come across like a kayak or an unmanned, you know, dinghy that's adrift, we're going to take it like there's a person in the water and search. So just having your phone number would be an easy way for the Coast Guard to resolve it. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. That way, the Coast Guard's not out there looking for someone who's not lost. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So is there anything else that you think we need to know or want to add? No, I mean, the Coast Guard was a great organization. I met my husband through there when I was on the ship. (laughs) I love the Coast Guard empowers even the most junior people with responsibility and the opportunity to make decisions, tough decisions, you know, to weigh the risk versus reward and provide opportunities for personal and professional growth. Yeah, I'll forever be thankful for the Coast Guard. Yeah, for sure. That's great. Yeah, there are definitely some great opportunities in the Coast Guard. Well, thank you so much, Leslie, for being here. I learned so much about SAR that I didn't know. And I know that everyone listening in will as well. So thank you for being here. Thanks, April. I really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in to the Women Offshore podcast. What did you think of the show? Leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. Additionally, if you want to propel Women Offshore forward, please visit womenoffshore.org or womenoffshore.shop, make a donation, or purchase some swag. Until next time, stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you soon.